Well, good morning. Um, I've got a few other things going on, but I thought I would just share this morning's insight. Um, I've talked about this before, that I think Buddhism is essentially um, a way to treat trauma because, uh, oh, geez, I've got that written down somewhere else, but the effect that uh, trauma has on our cognition, on our ability to think and, uh, you know, use logic and, and I mean as I've said in the previous podcast uh, Basil van der Kolt's pretty clear about this and it's uh, pretty obvious in science that uh, the brain shuts down we stop accepting uh, data let alone uh, being uh, present and aware I argue that's exactly my theory that um, the different types of thinking uh, type 1, type 2 you know autopilot uh, being mostly unconscious, uh, which is supposedly our default state, right? Default in the mode network uh, versus our higher order, our being present, being aware, and you know, and the thought, the belief that uh, we can't stay in that state of of higher order thinking uh, permanently, right? So, our job is to only use it when necessary. But I argue, if we were to be more mindful and make more uh, use of um, of this uh, state, uh, we can be more comfortable in, in being in it for longer and more often. Um, but that begins with emotional regulation. As I said, you can't use your higher order self uh, thinking, whatever you want to call it, type two, uh, system two thinking, right? Uh, complex thinking, right? How do you become conscious? How do you bring your free will to bear? I mean, I think they're all synonyms for the same idea of being uh, reactionary, being in autopilot mode, not being conscious, uh, not making choices, being uh, pushed about. So as Nietzsche would say, um, not propelled, willenmacht, not propelled, uh, but pulled along in a sense. So I argue, first step is emotional regulation. Um, and, and a funny little thing this morning, I'll just use as an anecdote that just is funny. So we get up this morning at 4 a.m., put uh, Jocko Wilnick to shame. We get up at 4 a.m., and it's pretty early. Uh, and me, I actually suffer from something that's uh, not uncommon, uh, but it's uh, difficulty coming out of, I think it's the theta brainwave state, but from sleep to awake. Uh, my brother had it as well. For the first half hour to an hour in the morning, um, I have a hard time waking up. And supposedly it's connected to this cortisol uh, system where it can take 30 to 90 minutes for us to come out of that state and start to wake up and like cortisol starts to rise. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so don't quote me on this. But for me, in the morning, because it takes me so long to wake up, I have a hard time telling whether it's a rough day, um, you know, my inflammation, my pain, my disease, my mood, you name it. You, you know, everyone has their issues when they get up in the morning, right? And we all lump it together as, oh boy, I need my caffeine. Ooh. So in the morning, I find it tough to be able to tell the difference between feeling rough from, say, the disease, the day before, mood, stress, the, 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 the coming day or the previous day or anything that might be. Um, but this morning, 
right? We, we were supposed to be a little chilly today, but there was absolutely nothing on the radar yesterday or today or any prediction for rain. Um, but after uh, I got everything set up, right, to make coffee and uh, refill their waters and all of our morning routine, I sat down and, and I could tell that it was more than just regular physical or somatic um, issues, right? I wasn't just feeling crabby. And so the wife checks the weather and, you know, that's when I mentioned to her, I say, well, I don't know. I said, but I certainly feel like, you know, there's going to be rain. The weather is going to be rough today because that's how I feel. And uh, no, no, absolutely not. It's going to be cold, but there's no rain, no prediction whatsoever. So we get ready. And as we leave this morning, lo and behold, it's raining. Right. So this is twofold. One, just as a joke. How is it all of this technology uh, that uh, the weather, big weather has, <laughs> all of the technology that big weather has, and they can't even predict something as simple as, is it raining outside right now? But my body can tell me more accurately what the weather is going to be, and it's often right. And what I realized this morning is it's actually a byproduct of trying to be more mindful of uh, your emotional regulation. And I think that's why the traumatized and the ill have so much uh, more uh, challenge. God, I'm sorry, I apologize. They have a, a, a greater challenge in this area. Uh, it's more difficult for them. Uh, to manage their emotional regulation because, well, I mean, we've talked about this. They get separated from their somatic experience. So some of them don't even know how to connect to their body and know what their emotional state is. Right? I, I give a, an example. is uh, you, can, you can do a little thought experiment for yourself or for others and see how connected or disconnected in, in reality you are from yourself. So as it goes is uh, you ask the person to picture themselves, just you know, clear your mind, picture yourself standing there. Now imagine a, a bus barreling down on you. How do you feel? So somebody who is uh, seriously disconnected from their somatic uh, self, their body, their experience, might hesitate, might not know, might, might you can kind of tell from the response if, if, um, if they don't respond about, you know, their their emotional state. I mean, I actually asked this of a friend of mine. And I think he answered pretty darn correctly. I was surprised because he does have, seem to have a... Um, but neither here nor there. Uh, I was surprised that he did. He was responded by, I would panic. That's pretty good, but it shows uh, a little deeper understanding of his own uh, emotional state. But, you know, in this case, hypothetical. But also, right, it's the idea of of panic, right? So he's just begun to understand that his tendency is, is to fight or flight, right? It's not um, conscious action, as it were, right? Panicking denotes this shutting down state, 
right? So I've seen this. Uh, I used to think worrying about, say, a flare, an inflammatory uh, flare disease would make it worse because you were worrying about it. But I think it's this doubling down of this negativity and and, and the trauma response, in a sense, because the mind shuts down and you get like a narrowed focus, a narrowed view. But that's what I wanted to mention is um, this emotional me- regulation is, is desperately important. It is what mindfulness is attempting to do. But it's harder to tell, plain and simple, what your emotional regulation, your state, even is. Let alone someone with, say, a, a chronic illness, a, cr- a chronic fatigue, a chronic pain, inflammatory or uh, immune-based disease. You name it. I mean, even uh, psychological um, difficulties can make it uh, near impossible for some, right? If you're autistic, if you're ADHD, if you're dyslexic, uh, you have depression or anxiety. Any of those will cause you to have the exact same disconnect from your somatic experience and and often because of um, developmental trauma, childhood trauma, that can actually uh, cause a delayed um, emotional maturity, uh, what they call an EQ, which are all desperately important. Know thyself, this idea of knowing your optimum state. That's really this window of tolerance, as some of them call it. This is emotional regulation. They talk about that, you know, there's uh, a regulated and a dysregulated state. But remember, there's hypo and hyper aroused. So it's not just being so wound up, you just can't sit still. It's also being so detached that sitting still is not doing uh, the benefit, right? So that's what I noticed this morning is that this is why it's so difficult with trauma. It's not simply the trauma coming back up in, say, meditation or contemplation or everyday life. It's also because you're so disconnected from your emotional regulation in your state. I mean, you're so reactionary. I saw a video last night of this lady who freaked out on a mechanic because uh, she didn't have the proper key uh, to her rims, right? Why? Because she was just fit to be tied, because again, you know, uh, mechanical issues, I've been there more than once. Um, So she likely started to shut down there. She sounded like she was definitely traumatized in all of these trauma-informed adaptations. But she just assumed that this guy she didn't know from a hole in the ground... Uh, must be an incompetent mechanic because why would she have the wrong key for her rims? And trust me, I know that would not be uh, unlikely, right? Because think about it. It, it, Somebody does some tire rotations and they accidentally drop the key and it rolls away. They throw in another key, mix the key up. There's a million reasons why she might not have the right key. And the fact that they don't have these universal first security reasons also means that your average mechanic, particularly one that you know uh, does house calls, <laughs> is probably not going to have access to the dozens of different um, keys. And I mean, I guess there's a way around it, uh, but that would be possible some damage. And 
But long story short, this lady just freaked out on the guy. So she ended up looking like a fool, being horrible to a person, uh, destroying her emotional regulation, likely for days. Um, and she didn't get her tire uh, swapped, so it didn't solve any of her problems. Right? But that's what I come to realize is, well, like I said, um, Gaber Mate's uh, recent book, uh, these traumatologists seem to be coming around to my thinking that trauma is universal. We're likely all to experience what could be defined as trauma because of how we react to it, right? Having a flat tire and needing to call a, a mechanic to come in and change the tire and even not having the right uh, nut because technically if she hadn't freaked out on the guy, he'd probably be like, oh, well, you know what? We just have to, you know, call the dealership and, and we can order a order the right one, right? It could probably be done that day, you know, because the dealership would probably drop it off to him. But no, 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 no. Because of her reaction and because of the situation that happened, right? No, nothing of what could have or should have happened, happened, right? That's your status quo the way things are as opposed to the way they should or could be, right? So that's why I argue it's not... See, I made this argument before. I'm currently taking uh, trauma-informed mindfulness course, the advanced uh, practitioner course. Um, and I absolutely adore the course. I mean, the book, I haven't been too... Uh, too, uh, what would you say it, uh, too chuffed about because there was some, some things in there that were a little off. But again, that's just me. That's my trauma. I, I fixate on certain things instead of on others. But my main thing here is, is the author is stepping back because he thinks he's taught everyone how important trauma uh, is to mindfulness. But I don't think he realizes how desperately right he was and how desperately wrong he is now. Because, yes, trauma is desperately important and all practitioners of mindfulness meditation, whatever you want to call it, should understand trauma. All medical professionals, lawyers, dentists, doctors, you name it. They should all understand. Social workers, uh, activists, uh, politicians, even journalists are calling for uh, currently uh, just finished a summit uh, yesterday um, and there was multiple um, multiple uh, seminars on the importance of trauma-informed journalism both for the journalist and for um, you know so they understand uh, the people they're writing about and for right so what I've actually come to realize. So the mistake, well, first, the, the correct is how important trauma is. I think, like I said, everyone should be taught because trauma is guaranteed in life. I've said this before, that we should be teaching our vets and our vet families, our first responders, everybody should be taught what is trauma, what can it do, what is a healthy response, what's an unhealthy response, what happens if you've uh, experienced an unhealthy response to trauma and then the resultant trauma-informed mind, um, 
adaptations and how mindfulness can help you. And here we go again. So the first problem for those that are in multiple traumas or um, incredibly dysregulated because of uh, either these these negative adaptations or maybe uh, symptoms that are impinging on their health. So first they have to understand what is even emotional regulation? What is my window of tolerance? And how do I even understand what state I'm in currently? Am I dysregulated? Right. So for me this morning, 4 a.m., uh, I did not feel great, didn't feel all that terribly rested, uh, but that's not abnormal. So still got up. That's, that's an improvement for me. Uh, usually I can't. Uh, I've been learning, and then this might prove my, my theory that um, these people that are uh, predisposed to being stuck in the uh, theta brainwave, so like the sleepy state in the morning, with conscious effort, you can actually pull yourself out of that, which is what I've been doing for the last few months, right? At first, getting up at 4 a.m., I just messed everything up for the first half hour to an hour. At this point now, it only takes me five minutes to ten minutes uh, on on a half-decent day to wake up. Today, I think it was possibly also not feeling shit hot that might have influenced um, getting a little more focused. And I think that's why it's, it's uh, part and parcel of this whole constant vigilant mindfulness. Because my struggle to... Understand my my emotional and physical regulation and, and state uh, also helps bring you into present and presence, uh, thereby managing your emotional regulation. Believe it or not, being disconnected from your physical state, your emotional state, anxiety, as we tend to do as a, a you call it a coping mechanism but by disconnecting from that that actually causes it to be worse because you're not in any way um, conscious or um, managing this state or any state let's be honest right so for me um, that seems to help me get regulated because it also helps me get out of that sleepy, uh, dull state in the morning. But for this morning, it was like, oh boy, Whew. it felt rough. And by about 4.30 or 5 o'clock, uh, right, normally when I'd be awake, and, but at that point I realized that the weather is not going to be great. And that's what the wife and I were talking about. I was just trying to figure out what it is that we notice. Um I guess it's connected to inflammation because supposedly it has to do with the barometric pressure changing and you feel that in the bursa sacs of your joints and all this jazz. But it seems to be broader than that. It just, you know, it makes you feel crappy, right? Because there used to be, a, you know, the wives tale that, you know, um, you know, the old folks could tell this stuff, right? Your joints and, and it seems to be uh, proven by science, and I just made the joke this morning, sitting there, and I'm like, well, I know the weather's saying no, but I gotta tell you, it feels like it's gonna rain today. And I explained that I don't know if that just means that they predict whether it's gonna rain based on uh, how the, the barometer changes, 
right? So they can't really know whether it's going to rain because just because the, the, the barometric pressure drops doesn't guarantee and vice versa. But it, as I said, it ends up whew, that, I mean, all of these weather networks were wrong because when we stepped outside, it was raining. Right? What is it with that? How can they get it so wrong when, when someone's so absolutely disconnected from the, uh, from the experience uh, can get it right? And so that's why I go back to the original idea that that's what mindfulness is meant to help us uh, learn, right? The original teachings of Sati Sampajana, and again, I, I'm pretty fixated on Buddhism. I could go, you could go back to before that. But let's just stick with uh, Sati Sampajana because it seems to be one of the most, uh, well, accepted, whatever you have whatever you want to call it. But sati sampajana, sati, to remember. What are we remembering? Well, in Buddhism, it's, it's um, the truth of impermanence. The truth of, of uh, the truth of self, right? That the concept of self is not how we actually see it, right? I call it ego recontextualization. You're not the center of the universe. And then another truth, the one that helps bind it together, is this truth of suffering, dukkha. And the suffering that actually flows from belief in permanence or disbelief in impermanence, right? Because it goes both ways. If you don't believe in impermanence, then you don't realize that the good or the bad are only temporary. And so to, you know, experience it in the moment so that's sati, that's to remember, that's to be focused and aware, to bring these truths to all of life's daily activities. That's the sampajana, to bring clear comprehension to all of life's daily activities. And this is why one of the first practices that the Buddha taught, right? and I think it's in combination with the Bhagavad Gita, so besides action yoga, besides going out and doing what you know to be right, and being and existing. The first way to manage your experience and be present and focused and aware and to handle the ups and downs of everyday life, the first way to do that was one of the first of the Buddhist teachings called the Satipatthana. There's also the Maha Satipatthana, but it doesn't matter. Because in it, it teaches us what we're supposed to do. It does mention focusing on the breath, but it's only because it's what we always have, and it's there at hand. And it's most important, because not only does focusing on the breath help manage your breath, but focusing on the breath actually helps manage your uh, emotional regulation. But it's also a window into your emotional regulation. And it controls your emotional regulation. I mean, science now sees that um, using something like pranayama, like four, seven, eight breathing, is just the truth of our parasympathetic nervous system, that we're actually able to a certain degree, I'm not going to say completely, but to a certain degree com uh, control 
this parasympathetic nervous system. So this is what Buddhism was intended to teach. This is what uh, even the original Bhagavad Gita was teaching. This is what's in the I Ching. There is no difference. This truth of the, the guarantee of, um, of challenge, of difficulty, of opportunity, however you want to define it, uh, in life. And the best way to manage that is, well, according to Carl Friston, a modern-day philosopher uh, come by uh, physics, says that we need to manage our free energies. When the brain is just sitting idle, it's, it's trying to predict the future. Don't attach too much to the crazy ideas that it comes up with. But most importantly, when life finally throws you the experience, accept it as ordered. That's Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. It's, it's the amor fate. That's the trick. I'll leave it at that.